Hello, my name is Althea Learson, the CEO of Leadership Buffalo. I'm here to welcome you to our new podcast, Connections. We'd like to thank Lolly Insurance for sponsoring this series for us. At Leadership Buffalo, we are on a mission to connect people and inspire change. Each month, we will connect with the people that make our community the vibrant, resilient, and beautiful region we call home. Along the way, we'll be having candid and sometimes challenging discussions and stepping outside of our comfort zones in the hope that we can grow alongside our city. Thank you for listening. Please enjoy. In this episode, we wanted to celebrate and honor Black History Month, so we sat down with artists, community leaders, activists, and business owners from Buffalo's vibrant Black community. In this episode, you'll hear the voices of Asia Alexander, the marketing coordinator here at Leadership Buffalo, Charity Burning, our director of diversity, equity, and belonging, and myself, Sean Ryan, as we dive into connections here in Buffalo, New York. Hi, Jillian. Hi. How are you? I am great. Happy to be here. We're super happy to have you. Thank you. If you could just tell us who you are and what you do. Yes, I'm Jillian Hainsworth. I am born and raised in Buffalo on the east side. Um, Kensington and Bailey, stand up. (laughs) I am the founder of Literary Freedom, which is a um, literacy access and advocacy organization. And I am the first poet laureate. Um, of the city of Buffalo. That's amazing. Buffalo is lucky to have you. Can you just tell us a little bit about that work that you do and what you mean when you say advocacy? Yeah, so um, my background is actually in professional advocacy. Um, The way I see it is you are leveraging your own privilege for the greater good, for the sake of of the people. Um, So I went to Buffalo Public Schools pretty much my entire life. But I did not know until I was a junior in college that I'm dyslexic. And I found out after getting kicked out of school, after um, petitioning to get back in, I worked four jobs through school because I lost my financial aid. And my graduation day was my eviction day. So I, in my cap and gown, was like putting my stuff in bins and bags, trying to get my stuff out of my apartment before the marshals came. Cause I'm like, I'm not about to be embarrassed like on my graduation day. Um, so I had no idea. And one thing that I've really come to realize is it's really hard to, to read and take in information when you can't see yourself in it. Um, so I started Literary Freedom and Buffalo Books. And through Buffalo Books, I build library boxes and I put them around the east side, I put them on corners, I put them in barbershops, and I stock them with books that are culturally relevant, books that adults and kids alike can find themselves in the characters. I also purchase books from local authors, so it's a distribution stream for our local writers. Um, And I just really wanna make sure that access is never the barrier. Like, if you don't read, it's not gonna be because you don't have a book. (laughs) It's gonna be for some other reason, but as long as I'm here, it's not going to be because you can't access it. And so in this, you know, we've, we've talked to a few people in the community so far, and one of the themes that we're discussing is storytelling, right? And I think that that ties in to this idea of literacy and seeing yourself in stories. How do you feel or how do you know that storytelling is a way of moving us forward? Or what do you think storytelling is a tool for? Yeah, I mean, I do think it's a tool for, for moving ourselves forward, for remembering where we came from. Um, the art of storytelling is all around us. It's in music, it's in poetry, it's in literature, um, it's in walking past the corner store and hearing two guys talking about something that happened that morning. Like, it's all around us. Um, so not only does it help us to preserve who we are in our culture, especially people like black and brown people who very often have to lose or give up certain parts of their culture in order to fit into the American mold. Um, it helps us retain who we are. But it also forces us to be honest about what's actually happening in our communities, what's happening in our society, how we got to where we are. Um, I think a big, big issue that, that I often see is that we try to solve issues without being honest about them. And just telling a story, saying a poem, listening to a song, it can help remind you of the realities of what we're facing on a daily basis. Um, 
And once we know what we're actually facing, we're much more equipped to to fight those things. So. Yeah. It, walking into something without any context, and I think that's what storytelling provides, right? Is this context and understanding, and in history too, right? When we talk about community and specifically the work that you do with you know the Black and Brown community, what does what does doing that work mean to you, and why do you do it? Yeah, I. I really really think that this is why I was like placed on this earth to do this um I've tried to do a lot of things I've always thought of myself as like this busybody. I always have a lot going on I always would sign my name on every single sign up sheet um but now that I'm actually kind of hitting my stride and, and learning how to use my voice learning how to leverage my voice like learning the the impact of my voice I'm really finding my way through it and learning how to walk in it. Um, to me, like my community is everything, is everything. I, I think growing up on the east side, um, so in the, in the spirit of honesty, right? The east side, there has been no economic progress for black people in Buffalo coming from the east side in over 30 years. I just turned 30 a couple months ago. So in my lifetime, I've never seen my people as people like come up. I've never seen us take a step forward together. But I've always had somebody looking out for me. I've always had the neighbor that would tell on me and my sisters if we were doing something bad. You know, we always had the people that were like, those girls were not on the porch when the streetlights came on. Like, you know, we've always had a sense of community and whether that was in my neighborhood or the church family or my, my school setting, I've always been able to find community. And my community has been willing to see things in me that I haven't necessarily so, like seen in myself. Um, prime example, my history teacher from high school. I was a nuisance in history because I read a lot. <laughs> so when what we were learning didn't really align with what I was reading, I'm like, hold on. We're gonna have to break this down. I wanna unpack it and I wanna do it right now in the middle of this class. <laughs> so I was that student and um, one day there was a debate and I never like looked into debate. I didn't care. I'm like, I'm just here so I don't get fined. I'm showing up <laughs> because I have to. Um, and my history teacher came up to me and he's like, Jill, like there's, there's a debate happening today and our closer is not here. So here's the deal. You fill in and you just close this debate out and I'll, I won't kick you out. Like, we could come to some kind of like agreement. So I'm like, all right, cool. Like, I you can't give me any more detentions. I already have enough. So, might as well just do it. Um, so, he pulled me out. He brought me to debate and I'd never stopped from that moment. I did not like finding myself through the art of debate was like, like the sun came out, you know? <laughs> in my senior year, I was the, the captain of the debate team and uh, we were undefeated my entire time. I'm not saying it's because of me, but I'm not saying it's not. <laughs> um, but that is what I mean when I say like that sense of community. Um, being in college and feeling like I'm, I'm losing everything because I don't have financial aid and I'm, you know, heckling my parents trying to get money to eat, like to be in that position and, um, and want to quit. I wanted to give up. And I remember walking into my advisor's office and I gave him my withdrawal form. He ripped it up in my face and was like, you have class in like 10 minutes, so you need to get going. Um, so I've always had that. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, using all of these opportunities that's presented to me, using all these tools that I've, I've saw other people use on me, I now need to rip up some withdrawal forms. Like when we are in our community and we're like, this is too much, it's too hard. Like, how do we heal? How do we unpack? I have to be the one that's like, I know it's hard, but before you, before you walk away, I'm gonna rip up that form because we gotta get back to work. And my tool is through poetry. Um, and the fact that I'm the first one to hold the role, um, that says a lot about um, the necessity of it, because there are so many other poets that I could name who could do what I'm doing, who could probably do it better, who could do it differently, who could bring so many other things to it. So I'm just happy that we have it now. And now that we have it, we just have to, we gotta sustain. Two things that like just so stand out to me about you is that 
you say yes to opportunity, right? You put yourself in the position to not only bring other people up with you, but use your voice, which is, you know, that's a scary thing to do. It's a scary thing to step in and say yes to something that you might not feel utterly prepared for, even though you intrinsically are. What what drives you to to say yes to these things that are that seem big or scary? What drives that? Yeah, um, I think it's really, really basic, honestly. Like, I get told no a million more times than I get told yes. So I'm not gonna tell myself no, too. Like, that just kind of defeats the purpose of it all. So, you know, I've, I've experienced so many doors getting closed in my face. You know, nothing that I've been able to do to this point has come easy. Even getting the role of Poet Laureate established took two years. And I had to like learn how to, you know, lobby and learn how to have these conversations and be like, are you gonna support this? And at no point was it comfortable. Um, but I think life has just positioned me to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, and that's a strength. And a lot of people don't understand that they, they willed that strength, but they really do. Um, because we're constantly fighting something. We're constantly trying to come up against something or, you know, down to basics, like we're trying to pay our bills, you know? Right. So it's, everything's a constant fight and you're gonna have enough people telling you you can't do it. You're gonna have enough people telling you it doesn't make sense or it's not necessary or it's not sustainable. So the last thing you need to do is become that person to your own self. Once you give up, then that's it. Like, so right. as long as there's something in me that's like, just get out of bed today, yeah. <laughs> then, then I'm gonna keep going. Yeah. yeah. What do you see as the end goal, right? Like if you could look five years down the line, 10 years down the line, uh, and we ask you, Jillian, what do you want to see? What would you say? Oh, that's so hard because there are so many things that I want to see. Um, I want to see people in my community just believe that the things we need, we are able to provide for ourselves. Whether it's a poet laureate or a black-owned grocery store or um, some sort of economic engine that, that really does inherently help pick our community up. I want us to have this collective mindset that there is nothing we need that we can't provide for ourselves. And that's the work of an organizer, right? We always say you wanna organize yourself right out of a job. I wanna organize myself out of a job. I don't wanna be necessary. That is my goal is to not be necessary because I already said it and they already believe it and we're already empowered and we're already creating the machine and we're self-sustaining and we're creating the roles that we know we need in our communities. And people like me who come on podcasts and go on news shows and tell people that you're powerful, we're not necessary because people already know they're powerful. And the people that says, you know, Black Lives Matter, we don't, we're not necessary because they're in our culture, we know that we matter. So the ultimate goal is to work myself right out of being necessary. Right. And then maybe I'll write about love or, you know, maybe I'll start writing about something else. But the goal is to not, the poems that people need to hear from me today, for them to not have to need to hear them in right. five years. Yeah. I'm going to ask you, what are three words you would say describe what you get from your community? and then three words that you would say you hope or that you feel your community gets from you. Okay. So three words I get from my community. Um, accountability, um, trust, and resiliency. Yeah, we've seen our community go through it all, um, and we're still going. Um, three things that I, I hope the community gets from me, um, Passion, honesty, and this is not one word, but but I hope that I'm, I'm taking a, some of the pressure off, you know, some relief, just a little bit of relief, whether that's relief from validation and just saying, hey, you're not crazy, like what you're saying is wrong, is wrong, and it's not normal, and we don't have to normalize it, and we can be honest about it, um, whether it's that kind of relief or whether it's saying a word that makes you feel like in this moment I can 
release my emotions. I can cry. I can I can be happy. And in this sad moment, I can celebrate the beauty of, of who I am and where I come from. Um, so I, I, I can only hope that I'm giving them those things and, and I do strive to do that every single day. It's not easy because sometimes I don't feel the hope that I'm trying to inspire. <laughs> sometimes I don't feel like in five years, I'm not gonna be standing on the stage saying I wish the little black boy did something wrong, you know? Um, people jokingly say like that's my crazy in love like that's the poem that everybody's like they associate that poem with me and they're like that's the one and I'm like but I don't want it to be the one you know like I don't want that to be my my marker um, so yeah I, I'm hoping that I'm, I'm inspiring and giving showing people my heart and everything that I do um, and just helping relieve some of the the weight of living in in this community being human and existing in, in multiple different intersections. Yeah, I mean, as someone who's been in your orbit for such a short while, I can tell you, like, you bring me hope. You bring, you know, joy and positivity to this community. And I, I'm like so incredibly, as a person who loves Buffalo and grew up here, I'm so grateful for you and the work you do in our community. I mean, it's just, I'm a fan. <laughs> I'm sitting over here standing. Um, the last question I have for you really is, what advice do you have for someone who says, I want to do impactful work for my community? You know, what, what, what advice do you have for that little kid who's like, when I grow up, I'm going to change the world. What do you say to them? Um, I say, don't put pressure on yourself to know what you want to be but put all the pressure on yourself to know who you want to be, what you want to be about, and then stand on that. And like, don't get off of it regardless, because in life, so many different alley-oops are thrown our way and we get new ideas. And you know, I wasn't a kid saying I wanted to be a poet laureate. Like, I've never met a kid that aspires to be a poet laureate, right? Um, but I do know who I want to be in my community. And I know and I trust that as long as I'm letting that guide me, I'll make the right decisions, you know, career-wise and all that. Um, so yeah, it's okay. It's okay to not know what you wanna be. It's okay to change your mind. It doesn't matter how old you are. Um, I was talking to one of my friends who's thinking about going to law school and we're 30 and she's like, man, by the time I get out of law school and I can actually practice, I'm gonna be like 35. And I'm like, well, in five years, you're gonna be 35 anyway. So <laughs> might as well go into it with a degree. Um, so it's okay to pivot and it's okay to change your mind and to learn new things. And as we, we take in information, our thoughts evolve, but you have to know what you're about. And you have to be willing to stand on that come hell or high water because the hell and high water is coming. <laughs> um, but stand on it. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned something really important about those versions of history that we have access to when we're really young. And we as people of color have to opt in to, to learn our own history. Can you talk about how access to knowledge and really access to black joy is gatekept and how the work that you're doing is truly a liberated revolution? Yeah, wow. I never thought of the work I'm doing as a liberated revolution. That's I like that. Um, I think access to black joy is definitely something that, that is gatekept. I think it's really hard to oppress people when they are happy, you know? It's really hard to to make people um, sad when they feel liberation. Um, and in our society, in, in Buffalo, but all across our country, and I've been abroad, so in other countries, you know, we're seeing like black bodies, black people, um, people a part of the LGBT community, people with different accessibilities needs, um, constantly being told that their other thing about them is like an asterisk. Like you're a woman and you're black and you have all these different parts of you. And instead of saying you are a black woman who's killing it, it's like, okay, so as a woman, here's how you're gonna be oppressed. Mm -hmm. And then as a black person, we're gonna sprinkle this oppression on you too. 
And then don't be a black woman part of the LGBT community. Like, don't be a black trans woman, because then you're basically, there's no space for you. Um, but I think when we give ourselves permission and give each other permission to experience joy, regardless of what's happening around us, we start to not remove all of the gates, but we start to plow through them, you know? The gate can still be there, but as long as it's not standing, it's not in my way. <laughs> um, and there are certain systems, like I, I say it all the time, when you look at racism, right? Racism cannot be black people's fight. We didn't make it, we can't fix it. So if there is nobody there that's going to remove that barrier, it's my job to just knock it down so we can just step right over it. Um, and with hopes that we'll be able to, to have allies that are really, really willing to do the work. Um, but I think the idea of, of black joy sometimes can even be oxymoronic, you know? Like how do you find joy when you are literally the person who, who built this country and watched everything be taken away from you, you know? Um, and I've, I've been asked that a, a few times, like how are you so happy? And I'm like, I don't know if it's happiness. I don't know if it's resilience. I don't know if it's my niece and three nephews and just my refusal to have them navigate the world the way I've had to navigate it. Um, I don't know if it's the understanding of being raised on survival rather than being raised on love and being able to witness what being raised on love can actually be. Um, but I think taking in all this information and, and finding ways to exemplify that same love and joy that we know we deserve, like we remove the gates when we do that. Um, and it's scary and it's hard um, because like I said before, there are days that I'm just like, this is not it. Like I'm about to apply for a job at a bank <laughs> and have me a nice cute little nine to five and when five o'clock strikes i'm done for the day um but it's just not not what i was meant to do um and then the second question okay the work that i'm doing is a liberated revolution i don't know if it is yet um i'm not sure what that looks like i think the idea of liberation and something being revolutionary is ever evolving so I don't know if I will ever be able to say that this work that I'm doing is in and of itself a liberated revolution. I do think it's a small part. Um, and I think that it's because of people like Sharon Holly and um, Annette Daniels Taylor and um, Lucille Clifton and, and the, the writers and the voices that are coming out of our community and have come out of our community I think I'm just one little small thread in all of it. Um, and I think combined, that is revolutionary. Like I think the fact that I can read a Lucille Clifton book and then drive to Lackawanna and see where she lived, you know, and, and write, and write a book, you know, and then put it out to my own community and they can identify with it. I think that in and of itself is a very small part of being revolutionaries and preserving our stories, preserving our voices, preserving our history, but also challenging our own thought processes and making sure that as we start to imagine what our city can be, we start to imagine what public safety can mean for us, we are not only bound to what we've always known because that is scary for me. It's scary to me to always have to use the same pieces of wood to build something new. Like we gotta, we gotta, <laughs> we have to kind of rework how we're thinking about this and we have to stop thinking about fixing systems. Like these systems are working intentionally. They're, they're already fixed, you know? We gotta start breaking things. We gotta start bulldozing things. We have to start completely reimagining what it means to exist here in our city. So if through a poem or giving a kid a book, or helping a parent learn to read, that if that's one little part of, of breaking those molds and helping people elevate our thought process, um, then I'm just doing my little tiny part. And I hope that somebody comes up after me and they do it bigger and they do it better. And you know, I, I hope that I can be someone's step stool 
um, my floor has to be someone's ceiling, just like <laughs> my ceiling is someone's floor. So um, I think that is what makes it revolutionary. There's a, I think that speaks to like something that um, we've seen a lot of revolutionary storytellers say before. In Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun, there's this beautiful scene with Asagai, and he's getting questioned on why he wants to go back home and what it means to him to be a leader for his community. And he says, if they come and cut off my head one day, I did my job mm -hmm. and I'm okay with that. Because he pushed and challenged people to ask for what they need yeah. and get it and go after it. And, and I think that that's so beautiful, right? I've never heard my floor is someone else's ceiling and someone else's ceiling is, and that's spot on. Yeah, ten toes down. Ten toes down. <laughs> uh, do you have any other questions? No? Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I've just been soaking up everything you've been saying. So um, thank you again for being here and sharing. Um, as a black woman and with this being um, Black History Month, I just wanted to ask because you do hold a lot of, um, you do an important job. And I'm sure that a part of your important job and a part of organizing and lobbying and um, being one of those people that is ensuring that our joy is not being gatekept um, from communities through your sharing of, of books and knowledge and literature and art, um, that's, that can be taxing, I'm sure. Um, so I just wanted to know um, if there is anything that you do to balance also taking care of yourself. Um, I think that often black women will neglect taking care of yourself because mm -hmm. we're often uh, the pillars of our community. And um, I think it's important to bring awareness to that self-care and self-love um, that we also need to pour into ourselves. So if you could just speak to that. if, if that Yeah. Um, self-care is probably the hardest thing to do. And I know everybody's shaking their head, so we all know. like mm -hmm. That's the hardest mm -hmm. thing to do because when you genuinely care about like the advancement of your people and your community and you know people are contacting me non-stop you know it can be something that has nothing to do with anything that I do and I'm getting Facebook messages like hey um I don't know who to ask so can you let me know if you know this is the most random questions and I won't I won't give any examples because um it's also it's pretty personal most of the time um so it's really hard to remember myself. It's really, really hard. Um, I've gotten to the point where, a couple times, where I did not shut it down fast enough. So my body was like, all right, now you're done. Like, now you literally cannot leave your apartment for three weeks. <laughs> like, um, so I think I'm always learning to take care of myself and learning what that means. Because something that can make me feel restored today might not make me feel restored tomorrow. Um, so even remembering not to put those guidelines on myself, I think I'm learning to give myself grace. And I'm learning that when it's time to rest, just rest, you know? When it's time to eat, just eat. Like, it's okay to press pause for a second and do what I need to do for myself because if I am not sustaining myself, the work can't get done. Um, so even thinking about it as one little piece to the larger puzzle, um, it doesn't matter how great of an organizer I am if I can't get out of bed for three weeks because my body's given up on me. Um, and it's also doing myself a disservice, right? So how can I be walking through the streets saying, treat us well, and I can't treat myself well? Um, so I've really been learning. I've been learning that. I've been learning how to get out of the hustle culture. You know, it's not a, a good thing to always have something to do. Like, it's okay to go to brunch on Sunday. Um, it's okay to take a day off. If you're tired, call off. Use those, those PTO hours. Um, I don't necessarily have PTO hours, but I remember the first couple of times that I've had to cancel performances, I felt so bad. And I would make myself too available. So now I disappointed you, so now you're gonna get two or three free events out of me because I just feel so bad. But now I'm like, listen, 
I, I can't come today, so we're gonna try to find another day. Um, love you, but but I'm tired. Um, so just being honest about my about how I feel, uh, giving myself time to rest, time to heal, time to have fun, um, and then making sure that I'm doing things that don't revolve around writing or poetry. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. Of course. Thank you for having me anytime. Yeah. If you could just let our listeners know where they can find you on social media or whatnot. Yeah. So my website is jillthepoet.com. Um, from there, you can find my Instagram. It's poet underscore Jillian underscore Hainsworth. And my TikTok, which is jillthepoet. And on Facebook, I am poet Jillian Hainsworth. I am here with the proud owner of Sunshine Vegan Eats, Nikki Soros. Yes, and we are so happy to have you here. It is February. This is Black History Month. Um, and as part of uh, the Leadership Buffalo mission, you know, to connect people, inspire change, and really highlight um, who we have as leading in Buffalo, um, you came to mind because you are a leader in the community, you are a leader in Buffalo, and you are a black woman who is a business owner. And I feel like this is the perfect opportunity to really highlight um, your accomplishments, your story, and get people um, informed on how they can be uh, supportive, how they can get involved, as well as um, just listen to the story of another successful black business owner and entity in Buffalo. Um, so with that, to preface us, I just wanted to ask if you could give a little background on who you are, um, share whatever you feel comfortable with, and a little bit about Sunshine Vegan Eats. Okay, so I would say I come from a background of, I did child care, so I come from, been an entrepreneur since November the 11th, 1996. Okay, so I've done a lot of different things, but moving into Sunshine Vegan Eats, prior I was doing uh, meal prep for people. So I did meal prep, and I didn't really have a direction. But I was the person who always cooked. You know, when it was an event, a moment, I was the cooker, okay? So even doing meal prep, people was like, oh, Nikki, you should X, Y, Z, and X. And I'm like, ah, that's not what I want to do. Okay. Um, so as time went on, I was making juices for people. I started for myself. And in the process, I did like a 21-day detox. And that's where the, not saying I wanted to be vegan, but just going into the pathway of just like just giving up all meat period um so during the journey and you know you change your palate and you look at there's so many things out there now like my first time trying vegan cheese that tastes like plastic so it has come a long way so once this it was a seed planted so like once the seed was planted i was like and still again, I was like, I don't know, do no restaurant because I never wanted to be like locked down. It was like, you know what? I'm gonna open a restaurant. Okay. So no vision, mm-hmm. no blueprint, mm-hmm. no nothing. Mm-hmm. And then once I said, and you know what? I'm gonna open on Jefferson. Yes. Still no nothing. I didn't know where I was going. Okay. No direction. And mm-hmm. I was like, I just started driving down Jefferson. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. So, you know, you see a few things. You know, you're like, oh, that looks empty. That looks yeah. empty. And I actually found 893 Jefferson. I talked to the guy next door. And I was like, okay, who owns this? How do I get in contact? And then the vision just started to unfold. Okay. And, you know, we always say, the moment, let's wait for the right moment. Mm -hmm. And I said, the heck with the moment, it's time to open. So March 7th, I opened up COVID. Mm -hmm. I literally got me a poster board. Okay. Took like 10 things off the menu. And this is what it's gonna be. Cause you know, people always say, what's the business plan? What's the game plan? What's this, what's this? It all has to make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes it don't make sense. You have to kind of learn as you go along. Mm -hmm. But now would I change a few things? Absolutely. Right. But 
I love the direction that Sunshine Veganese is going into right now. That's awesome. Yes, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I think something that really stood out is the fact that it seems as though you really moved from a position of like what you want to do and staying true to yourself. And I think that that's something that's just so important for people to do. So that is so powerful, a powerful aspect of your story um, for other people to hear that feel that they may need to be constrained or may be sitting on a vision or, or a feeling in themselves. Right of something to do and not necessarily knowing what to do and just moving on how you feel and, mm -hmm. and, and what and what experiences come your way so that's awesome I wanted to ask also are you um, from Buffalo yes born and raised in Buffalo born and raised in Buffalo okay yes. so um, when you were on your journey to deciding where you'd like to open up your restaurant while you were vacillating between if you wanted to open mm -hmm. up a restaurant or whether or not to open up a restaurant was there something in particular about what you saw on jefferson that that drove you to want your business to be there so i chose jefferson because we in the black community we need help mm -hmm. you know what i mean you can pretty much go anywhere and you have like juice bars, you yeah. have healthier options. And if you drive down Jefferson Ave, yeah. it's nowhere. Right. And I get people that come in that, you know, lived in the community, yep. that's been there forever, and yep. they be like, thank you. Yeah. Like, thank you for showing up. Thank you for coming here. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay, all right. So, yeah. you know, when you it's start impactful. getting that, yeah, because we're, you know, you can't really roll up and, get a fresh juice, yep. a smoothie, yep. just even a simple, people come in and they'll just get ginger shots. Yeah, yeah. just to just for the health and wellness, and, the, yeah. and it speaks to the fact that there obviously is a need there, and I, I love that you're fulfilling that, that's so awesome and so impactful. So. I also wanted to know if there was an influence that, regarding cooking, that led you to being the cooker, like if you have any, any fond memories in your childhood, or any fond experience that led to your culinary skills, especially thinking about framing us in this being Black History Month. Right. I just want to know your perspective on if you feel as though culinary um, skills and tools is a way of like transferring history for us in our okay. community as well. So, like I said, I, I come from a background, I did daycare. My kids love when they came and ate. Like when they come, like you know you get the kids, they come from like after school, yes. they come in, they don't even say hi. They be like, what are we eating today? Yes. Yes. Right, so yes. <laughs> I started there. Um, and then over the years, you change your perspective on food, right? Mm -hmm. So like both my parents have different health issues. Okay. Um, and I knew that that's not how I wanted to live my life. Okay, well thank you so much for sharing. Um, just to wrap, is there anything that I didn't ask that you would like to share with the with the community, with the network, about yourself or about the business or how they can support? Well, you guys can support us. Um, you can come to Sunshine Vegan Eats at 893 Jefferson Ave. You can follow us on all social media platforms platform excuse me okay. sunshine vegan eats um we're here we're in the community um we're open six days a week okay. and we bring energy and love every single day all right so i am here with the, the lovely uh miss sharon holly of zoeti books in buffalo new york um, Ms. Holly, can you please just share with us um, more about who you are for those that don't know or don't have the pleasure of knowing? Like, just go ahead and tell us uh, maybe where you're from um, and some more about you, just your background. No, you don't want that long story. <laughs> oh, you will love it. <laughs> but I'll start off by saying I'm a Floridian by birth, uh, so I migrated to Buffalo in the 1970s. Uh, and while I was in Buffalo, of course, I went to library schools. So I ended up being a librarian for Buffalo and Erie County Public Library, where I worked for 34 years. Uh, in the meantime, my husband and I, in the early 70s, decided that Buffalo needed a black bookstore. Mm -hmm. uh, we were book buyers, book readers, mm -hmm. but we had to go to Toronto and Detroit. Mm -hmm. Uh, to find the kind of books we were looking for. Mm -hmm. So we opened up a small store in our home called Harambe Books and Crafts. And Harambe means let's all pull together. And for a while that worked. The bookstore was in one of the empty bedrooms okay. and people would just ring the doorbell and I would let them come up and they could browse a few books and mm -hmm. choose what they want. Mm -hmm. 
But after a while, it became not a safe place uh, because you weren't sure who was ringing the doorbell and who you're going to let in your home. So we decided, well, let's get a storefront. So we moved from the home to a place at Maine and Utica upstairs. Okay. And we rented a, a small space there. We operated there for several years. And we moved from there to East Utica and Fillmore, where we had another space on the ground floor, which was a lot more prosperous on the ground floor. And we continued to grow, bring in authors. And then, because we were both working full-time jobs, we decided, we're done. Mm -hmm. We sold the store. Mm -hmm. And the people who purchased the store moved it to Sycamore, near Michigan. And after a couple of years, they said, we're done. Mm -hmm. And we bought it back. And renamed the store Zawadi Books. And Zawadi means uh, the Swahili word for gift. So we opened the store back at Zawadi on Main near Jewett. Okay. And we operated there for a few years until that building was sold. Mm -hmm. And now we found the space on Jefferson Avenue where mm -hmm. we are still operating. Wonderful. That's so amazing. Wow. So it seems as though even though um, there were some different things that may have came up and had you guys uh, moving the, the spirit of wanting to continue um, to provide a space as well as cultivate a space for, for a black uh, bookstore and black library was always there for you and your, your husband, is that? Right? I, I would say that uh, we had a desire to, to keep it going, yeah. especially because we didn't see anyone else in the community mm -hmm. who, who was doing that. Yeah. And black bookstores for me was it's like a safe place, mm -hmm. like a haven. Mm -hmm. um, most of the black bookstores that I have been in throughout the country, the people who run them are very knowledgeable yes. about the literature, able to point you in the direction that you want mm -hmm. for the things that you want. Mm -hmm. And it also provided a space in the community for other cultural things. Mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like the bookstore became the stopping point for news. Mm -hmm. People would mm -hmm. stop in, they tell you what event they're holding yeah. you know they said we want to do this for the community mm -hmm. and so even as Harambe we were holding community meetings for the Kwanzaa committee okay because Kwanzaa had already started in Buffalo Kwanzaa yeah. started in 1966 mm -hmm. but I think the earliest um, Kwanzaa celebrations in Buffalo was probably the early 70s okay but individual centers would hold a Kwanzaa event, okay. and then there might be nothing else for the week. Right. So we pulled a committee of people together from different organizations mm -hmm. and said, let's form a committee where we could say, opening night's going to be at your center, second night's going to be at your center, third mm -hmm. night's going to so we Like could a move, think tank almost. Right, so we could move it around the city, because mm -hmm. there were people who said, well, I would come, but it's in the fruit belt. And people right. in the fruit belt said, well, I'm not, I don't feel comfortable coming on mm. Jefferson. You mm. know, so there were a lot mm. of different mm. things. So we said if we move it around, okay. everybody gets a chance. An opportunity, yeah. Right, to, yeah. to celebrate Kwanzaa. So mm. the Kwanzaa committee came out of meetings that were held at Harambe Bookstore. Wow. And then from there, there were meetings about, well, let's celebrate the Marcus Garvey Day. Mm -hmm. So then we would have Marcus Garvey Day parades and wow. bring in speakers. And let's celebrate Malcolm X Day. Wow. So all these things were growing out of the community of people yes. who were coming into the bookstore and talking and, yes. and saying, why don't we do this? Well, let's get together and let's do that. So one of the most powerful things um, that I took from what you just said is how people came together in the community for the common goal of like seeking knowledge in this library or just maybe finding a safe and quiet space. And from that came so many different programs. It just seems to seems to show and display for those that may not know or who it may not who may not think about libraries or bookstores um, in a certain light as a place that just breeds so much. Um, brilliance and success and, and and things for the community like it's really a a, a, a formidable kind of uh, stature in our community and I, I love that we're bringing attention to it so yes thank you for sharing so much about it um, 
one thing I also wanted to ask, um, so by way, I didn't include this in your introduction, but I know that you're also a storyteller. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, so what can you share with us? What does that mean for you? What does that mean to be a, a storyteller, a, specifically a black woman who is a storyteller? It means, it means that when I define a storyteller, I define it as a person who's able to take words mm-hmm. and paint them into pictures mm-hmm. that you can see in your head and mind. Mm-hmm. Um, my example would be, people can read the story of Little Red Riding Hood and you know, I can pull you up a book and show you the illustrations mm-hmm. and everybody's gonna have the same image because mm-hmm. of the illustration that they see in the book. Mm-hmm. But as a storyteller, without using the book, mm-hmm. if I tell you the story of Little Red Riding Hood, Little Red Riding Hood mm-hmm. you're gonna imagine her in your head. She's gonna look like you want her to look. Yeah. She's not gonna look like the, the standard illustration. I she might look that. like you. She might look like somebody you know. Mm. It, it becomes more personable. Mm-hmm. So storytelling helps to kind of take that imagination and, and let it grow mm. from listening to the words and the descriptions of how stories are told. Mm. So I got into storytelling. I probably think I was always a storyteller, but I never said that. Yes. Because I was always listening to things that people said and was often able to tell it back, mm-hmm. even though my friends would say, no, it didn't happen like that, mm-hmm. but it did to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I had, put my own little, yeah. I had to put my own little spin on it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it became, um, it became something, not that I was obsessed with, but that's something that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. So I got a chance to hear a lot of well-known national storytellers, uh, including the co-founders of the national group that I belong to called the National Association of Black Storytellers. Okay. Uh, One of the the founders, uh, Mother Mary Carter Smith, was from Baltimore, Maryland. Actually, she was from West Virginia, but she ended up in Baltimore, where she was the official griot of Baltimore. Okay. And she would tell stories, of course, of growing up in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And just the imagination would just take you all, all over the place. And mm-hmm. I admired how she was able to do that mm-hmm. without reading it. Right. You know, right. but just, just from memory, yes. what she was able to do. You talked about the imagination, the creativity, um, the skill that it requires to storytell. Um, how do you feel that it can help us as a community for people that are just open to receiving and listening, um, as well as people that may feel that they have a story that they'd like to share in celebrating black history, specifically well, in Buffalo as well? My philosophy is everybody's a storyteller. Okay. Okay. You may not call yourself a storyteller, yeah. but I say that because everybody has a story, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And for some people, they'll never tell. Mm-hmm. They'll never tell their story. Mm-hmm. Uh, for others, you know, they will share the stories that they have. But I think you have to be in a place where you feel comfortable to tell your story. Mm-hmm. Because some stories are not, they're not easy. Yeah. You know, some stories deal with trauma. Yeah. And you have to be in a in a place where you feel comfortable mm-hmm. releasing that trauma mm-hmm. to a group of strangers mm-hmm. who may not know you, mm-hmm. you know, but who may can identify with what, with what you're going through. Yeah. If you're not comfortable with it, then that's not the time to tell that story. Right. And I also say, yeah, I enjoy the fact that, you know, that it helps stimulate imagination, mm-hmm. not just because many people say, well, storytelling, that's for children. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not really just for children. It's right. for everybody. Yes. You know, it's, it's for adults. Even adults will listen to a children's story, yeah. especially if you're not showing them a picture book. Because mm-hmm. if you show, a, say you show a teenager mm-hmm. a story in a picture book, the story resonates, but... Mm-hmm. He feels like you're talking down to him because you're showing him 
maybe a nursery rhyme, you right. know, a nursery rhyme book. Right. Uh, Kareem and I were talking once, and we were talking about the nursery rhyme, the Itsy Bitsy Spider. Yes. And so we said, you know, the Itsy Bitsy Spider is really a story for adults. Like we teach it to kids in preschool and yeah. we do the finger playing, you know, you climb yeah. up the water spout. Mm -hmm. Well, what it means is that everybody has somewhere to go. Yeah. And there's something that's going to knock you down. Yeah. And once you're knocked down, the, the, you have a decision to make. Are mm -hmm. you going to stay down? Mm -hmm. Are you going to get up? Mm -hmm. And you're going to try again. Wow. So the a spider, you know, after the water yeah. knocks him down off the spout. It said rain washes him out, mm -hmm. but the sun comes out, and mm -hmm. here he comes. He's going back, going up, the right back up. up the spout again. Yeah. So the, even the nursery rhymes, you know, and the little kids' stories, they, they all can teach you yes. something. And sometimes it doesn't resonate right away. Right. Because maybe they didn't really hear it yet. Yeah. You know, it might be tomorrow when they said, oh. It'll right. click for us. Exactly. Like and I think that that speaks to, um, you know, tribulation coming and still triumphing and, and, and continuing to have perseverance and all of those good things. Even if someone may not get that right now and it happens later, I feel like that's something that's, um, that speaks to how that translates our history and transforms our history when it's shared um, down the lines, right? Right. Um, so I think that that's an important way that we can can continue to share about black history and about what we can do to prevail and, and triumph and heal, as you said earlier, which is so beautiful to me. And so, it talks about resilience. Yeah. You know, it says that uh, we are a resilient people. Mm -hmm. uh, when you go back through our history, as books will tell you, mm -hmm. the kinds of things that African-American people have endured mm -hmm. over the course of the history. And as the, one of the ending of Langston Hughes' poem says, but we're still here. Thank you so much. And then if you could just share with our um, audience once again who you are, where they can find you, um, and yeah. Okay, so I am again Sharon Holly. Uh, my husband is Kenneth Holly, and we operate Zawadi Books at 1382 Jefferson Avenue uh, in Buffalo. We are a small independent bookstore that caters to books by and about people of African descent, where we're open to everyone. Yes. Uh, our hours are Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays from 12 to 4. Thank you for tuning in to this month's episode. Be sure to come back next month to hear our episode about Women's History Month. Thank you again to our sponsors at Lolly Insurance. Have a wonderful day.